0: well with my soul number 256
1: That's it. (laughs) Well, we found out who the people are who pay attention to daylight savings time. There are going to be others who wake up this morning and go, oh, yeah, I'm right on time. I'm really doing good. And then they're going to find out that everybody else in the world is an hour ahead of them. And uh, if they show up here late, I invite you all to point, laugh, and jeer. We had a really good week this week at the conference. I enjoyed the conference in Gladeville very much. God was very good to me. My voice held out, and I remained healthy through all of it. So as soon as it was over, I got a lousy, stinking cold, which Marilyn points out, all colds are lousy and stinking. There are no fun and happy colds. I'm going to be like Hillary this morning and power through. <laughs> and if it just becomes too hard, then you'll be blessed with a shorter than usual sermon. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And then keep your finger there and see if you can find Acts 16. The second letter from Paul to the Corinthians is the most personal of all of the epistles that we have from Paul. We're going to see evidence yet again this morning that there may have been another epistle between what we call 1st and 2nd Corinthians. There may have been a short epistle because he makes reference to it in chapter 2. And we simply don't have that. It's lost to antiquity somewhere. But we get a pretty good sense of what was in it by his references to it. He is writing from Macedonia. And so we need to be familiar with Paul's relationship with Macedonia so that you can understand why at the end of chapter 1. He said, I'm not being wishy-washy. I'm not being yes, yes, and no, no. I really did intend to come to you on my way to Macedonia, but I definitely had to get to Macedonia, and now I will get back to you, because his plans, he argues, did not change according to his own will and desire. His plans were changed by God. Now, this is a man who is very used to God changing his plans. This is a man who knows very well that the spirit of God can send him wherever the spirit of God determines to take him. And that's why we're going to go look at Acts 16. So let's start there. Keep your finger in 2 Corinthians. Turn to Acts 16. This is classically known as the Macedonian call. And it's the spirit of God changing Paul's plans. And that's why when writing to the Corinthians, he can say, I didn't change my plans. I'm not wishy-washy. I didn't tell you I was coming and then go, oh, never mind. It was the Lord who changed my plans. Let's start at chapter 16, verse 1 of the book of Acts. And he also came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by all the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. I really don't have time to get into this this morning, but... Circumcision is a sign of Abrahamic descendancy. If you are a part of Israel and you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, circumcision was a requirement. So now you've got a man here who is partly Jewish, partly Greek, and Paul decides that, for lack of a better word, that he does qualify for circumcision, being that he has the Jewish mother. But then Paul came across Titus. Titus was a Greek. He had a Greek father and mother. And Paul argued that Titus should not be circumcised because he was purely Gentile. But in Timothy's case, because he had a Jewish mother and a Greek father, Paul contended that he should be circumcised so that specifically he could take him into the temple, because uncircumcised people were not allowed into the temple so since there were jews in that area who would know that rule they would contend immediately with paul and timothy if paul took a greek uncircumcised into the temple but in order for him to continue ministering among the jews in that area he circumcised timothy Paul wanted this man to go with him, verse 3, and he took him to be circumcised. He circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. And they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Okay, so here's Paul and here's Timothy. We know them to be two of the strongest proponents of the doctrines of grace, of the teaching of the gospel, the strongest evangelists in the Middle East at that moment. And they intended to preach the word wherever they were. But they were prohibited by the Holy Spirit from speaking the gospel some places. So Paul was accustomed to the idea that the Spirit of God could override his intention. He knew what he wanted to do, but the Spirit of God held sway over his decision-making. Verse 6, and they passed through the Phrygian and the Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Okay, they had their plan. They had their journey mapped out. They're going to go into the areas of Bithynia. They're in Mysia. They're going to go north and east. That's their plan. But the spirit of Christ wouldn't permit them to go there. Verse 8, so passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Now, Troas, if you were to look at a map, many of you have maps in the back of your Bibles, If you look at where Troas is, you can see that he's starting to move into the Grecian area now, which is exactly where Philippi is. That whole region is known as Macedon. In fact, Philippi was originally named the city of fountains. And then Philip II, who is Alexander the Great's father, around 360, 356 BC, he renamed that city after himself. And so it became Philippi from there forward. Philippi is in the area of Macedon, and Troas is heading that way, westerly toward Greece. Verse 9, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia, of Greece, was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. The Holy Spirit and Christ have forbidden Paul to preach in the areas he wanted to preach in, not in Asia, not in Bithynia. Those aren't the areas that you're going to go. You're not going northeast. You're going to go west. You're going to take the gospel into the area of Macedon. And then in order to validate that this is where he's supposed to go, he has a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come to us. And God is going to reaffirm, I've got plenty of people there. God, in his electing grace, in his predestinary will, has already decided that there are a bunch of people over in Macedon that need to hear Paul. So Paul goes into Macedon, and he preaches in Philippi. And the Philippian letter, I have often pointed out, is the joy letter. Of all Paul's letters, he he speaks most joyously of that church in Philippi who send once and again for his support, and they take care of him, and they send emissaries to him, the church at Philippi really becomes very helpful to the ministry of Paul and his associates as they're traveling through Macedonia. So now you have a little bit of sense of why Paul, when traveling past Corinth, would want to stop for a moment in Corinth, but then he would want to get back to Macedonia. He would want to get back to Troas, he would want to get back to Philippi, he would want to get back to those people who have really helped him, which is why he said to the people in Corinth, I wanted to come to you so that you could help me. But then he realized that if he made his way all the way to Philippi, all the way to Macedonia, that he would accomplish the help he was looking for. Let's read the end of it. Verse 9, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You think? That's a big clue. After you've been prohibited from every place else you've gone, when you get the vision that says, come here, that's pretty good affirmation that that's where the spirit of God wants you to go. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and on the day following to Neapolis and from there to Philippi which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. Okay, so now you kind of get the relationship that Paul has with Corinth, which at the end of the letter of 2nd Corinth, he's even going to argue, the more I loved you, the less I was loved by you. The only thing you fell behind... Between you and all the other churches is that I was no burden to you. And he even says, forgive me that wrong. He expected help from Corinth that he just wasn't getting. So in order to get help, he had to go back to Macedonia, had to go back to Philippi, had to go to the church there, and then make his way back to Corinth And then he stayed with them for a longer period of time. So that's what he's arguing at the end of chapter 1. Turn back to 2 Corinthians. In chapter 1, starting at verse 12, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, We have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you, for we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you, that you might twice receive, some translations say a blessing, we talked about it last week, it's the word charis, it would be better translated that you might receive twice the graces of God. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia, to come to you, and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or that which I purpose, do I purpose it according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus who was preached among you by us, by me and by Silvanus and by Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as may be the promises of God, in him they are yes. Wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge but I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth not that we lord it over your faith But we are workers with you for your joy, that in your faith you are standing firm. That's where we stopped two weeks ago. And I hope that that's enough review to get you all caught up with how Paul is appealing to the folks at Corinth. He's expecting some help from them. He's expecting some support from them. And then he's expecting to be sent on his way to Judea. But time and time again, the folks at Corinth have to be dealt with because of their sinfulness and their lack of real steadfast commitment to the things that Paul is continually writing to them. So they're having to be corrected time and time again. And despite having to be corrected time and time again, I really like the fact that Paul never says, that's it, you're not a church. The other churches are not doing what you're doing. The other churches are giving and supporting me. The other churches are firm in their stand for the gospel. You're listening to all these tangential voices that are coming in, voices that are arguing against my doctrine, voices that are arguing against me as an apostle. And despite that conflict he was having with them, he never wrote them off and said, that's it, you're not a church. Because as we saw in the book of Acts, God is already, the Spirit of God is already forming a church in Corinth. They're just a troublesome church. They're just a church in the flesh. They're just a church that needs to be corrected, that needs to be taught. God has said he's got many people in that area, in that church, and so Paul just does not give up on them. And that would be a terrible precedent for the church to set, that if you don't do it exactly right, that's it. You're not a church. Although there are a few churches here in Smyrna that I would like to say that to. Amen. All right. So we're at chapter two, verse one. But I determine this for my own sake that I would not come to you in sorrow again. So that's why he apparently wrote the epistle that we don't have and corrected some things that needed to be corrected. And on his way to Macedonia and on his way to Philippi, he decided that he wasn't going to go into Corinth again because at the time he was apparently upset with them. And he didn't want to come and bring them sorrow upon sorrow because logically, verse 2 is going to say, I expect you to make me joyous. I want to come happily to you. And if I make you sad, if I make you sorrowful, then I'm making sorrowful the very people I need to make me happy. So why would I do that? Verse 2, for if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? And this is the very thing I wrote you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. Now, there he is again making reference to that's why I wrote to you. And in a moment, he's going to get into a bit of the content of that writing. And I think we can argue effectively that it's not what we would call first Corinthians that's not the letter he's referring to apparently on his way to Macedonia he dropped the folks in Corinth a corrective letter even above and beyond the letter that we have which is called first Corinthians and the purpose of that letter was to correct them but he doesn't want them to be sorrowful because when he comes He wants them to joy in the Lord, rejoice with him, be happy in their salvation. He's not trying to make people angry. Verse 4, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. That theme is going to come up time and time again through this letter. Paul is going to keep arguing, I don't correct you because I hate you. I'm not correcting you to make you sorrowful. I'm correcting you because I love you so much. Everybody in the room who's a parent knows what that feels like. We don't correct our children because we hate them, even though they might think so. We correct our children because we love them and we don't leave them to their own childish will and desire or else they're going to go crazy and they're going to wind up in jail and they're going to wind up in hell. And we have to explain to everybody, whoever meets them, why our child is such a brat. (laughs) We don't want that. We want our children to be good and obedient and have good manners, and so therefore we correct them. Now get this right, just philosophically. Some people think that love is the opposite of hate, but love is not the opposite of hate. Love and hate are both strong emotions. The opposite of love and the opposite of hate is indifference, and Paul could have been indifferent toward them. Because after all, they're a troubled church. They're causing them no end of pain and trouble. Why can't you all just be like the Philippians? Just do that. And it would be easy for Paul to say, that's it. I can't take anymore. I'm tired of the sorrow. I've grown indifferent toward you. But he doesn't. He argues, I'm correcting you. I'm bringing you along in the word. I'm building up your faith with tears. Not to make you sorrowful, but so that you'll understand how much I love you. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should have been made sorrowful, but that you might know the love with which I especially have for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me. But in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. By the way, that was Paul there editing himself, and I appreciate that. (laughs) Paul was saying, I can go on about this, but in order not to say too much about it, let me just say that if anybody is causing sorrow within the church, they're not making me sorrowful. But they are causing sorrow for you because you're infighting and you're arguing and you're you're not following in the way of the Lord. And that's the reason that you don't know daily the joy of the Lord. But it's not hurting me. It's hurting you. The way you're acting is hurting you. Verse 6. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Okay, now we don't know what that's about. That's apparently what he was addressing in that third letter. In a moment, he's going to say, forgive such a one, love such a one, and bring him back into the congregation. So I think we can safely assume that he's not referring to the discipline that we read about in 1 Corinthians, when there was a man who was sleeping with his own father's wife. Paul's answer to that was, turn that one over to Satan. Satan. So I doubt that Paul would write to them the next time and say, okay, that's enough. Now bring him back into the church and and love on him and let him know that it's okay. Apparently, given these details, there was something else going on in the church. It was making the church sorrowful. It was causing distress and trouble. And so they had to discipline him. But as I've said many, many times, and am going to say yet again, Church discipline is not for the purpose of destroying somebody. Church discipline is for the purpose of restoring somebody. Church discipline is for the purpose of reconciling that person back to their God and bringing them back into the community of believers. That is the desired end of church discipline. There are some churches that discipline in such a way that you would think they're, they're gleeful in the way that they discipline people and say, that's it, and you're out, and thank God I'm not like you, and you're really awful, and then they send them out of the body, never to return again. Paul's going to argue that the discipline that was put on this man was sufficient discipline that now you ought to also confirm to him that you love him. And bring him back into the fold. Now, not everybody is going to respond to church discipline in the positive way that would bring them back into the church. Some people are rebellious enough that after the church disciplines them and after the church puts them out, they're just going to wallow in their ill behavior. And you're not supposed to bring that person and their ill behavior back. You're supposed to watch their life. And if they repent, if they change, if they turn, then they're to be welcomed back into the church. But if they continue in their rebellion and their way of life, then it was proper that they be put out of the church. But if any has caused you sorrow... He has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So again, the purpose of the discipline was not to cause them to grieve to the point of anguish and excessive sorrow. It's for the purpose, ultimately, of letting that person know, we as Christians, we as blood-bought followers of Christ, we have a standard and we will hold our standard. And if you don't agree with our standard, we will put you out of the body for the good of the body but then we will welcome you back with open arms. We will bring you back to restoration and make you a part of the body again so that you're not exceedingly sorrowful. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Probably what he's getting at here. You'll remember that in the letter that we call 1 Corinthians, that he said to them, you should have held the standard. You should have put that man out of the church. But you gloried in it. You continued on in it. And you didn't put such a one out of the church. And you didn't discipline such a one. And you should have. I think he wrote a letter to them. As he said. Just to test them and see. Whether they'd be obedient. So he said to them. Discipline that man. Put that man out. Bring whatever discipline on him. That is sufficient punishment. But then having punished him then restore him, then love on him. And Paul says, I wrote to you to see whether you'd be obedient to that, whether you'd do that, or would they just continue on the way they had always been? La-di-da-di-da, we don't care what Paul says. Not that there is a Greek phrase that is translated la-di-da-di-da. <laughs> Verse 8, Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, for to this and also I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Will you hold the Christian standard? Verse 10. But whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. So what is Christianity ultimately? If you were to go online, if you were to look around online, if you were to look at YouTube, if you were to look at some of the Christian arguments that go on on Facebook, there is apparently a whole swath of modern Christianity that thinks the purpose of Christianity is to argue with people, to make sure that there are divisions. Divisions. And you're not like me, and you don't dot every I the way I do. You cross your T's different. You don't agree to every doctrine that I hold. Therefore, we're separate. We're different. You're condemned. You're going to hell. You're speaking for Satan. You can find all that stuff online. But look at Paul's approach. There was apparently somebody who was doing something bad enough that Paul wrote to the church to test them to see if they would hold to the discipline that he required within the church so that the standard is maintained, and then having disciplined that person, Paul's follow-up was, now love them, now restore them, now bring them back. I have often, often thought in reading these various arguments on the internet and These various arguments that fly around of people waving their fingers and condemning each other, I've often thought, you know, the Christian standard would be that if you have a disagreement with each other, you figure out where that difference is. You work it out between the two of you so that there is unity among you. Paul argues, and David Morris, who was here last Sunday, preached very effectively this week at the the conference. He preached a message that will be up online very soon. Whenever I get all the messages up and Andrew puts them on the conference website, you'll get to hear. He argued very effectively that we need to contend that we are adamant in keeping the unity of the faith. And there are so many people who claim the faith who are creating disunity because you don't agree with me on one little fine point. And I am sure that those people in creating their disunity simply have not looked at the whole of the Pauline corpus. And the whole Pauline corpus is predicated not on hate and not on division. Pauline writing is all based on the joy of the Lord, and the love that we all share for each other. So if somebody falls into sin, our response to them ought to be a loving response, the way we discipline our children, that it ought to be a discipline that corrects them for the purpose of bringing them back into the fold. There were five kids in my family, and my dad found out that the most effective punishment that he could put on any of us was to send us away from the dinner table cuz every day we had to be at the table mom, oh thank you somebody loves me <laughs> thank you don So we had to join every day. I don't care where you were. I don't care how old you were. I don't care what you were in the middle of. I don't care how involved you were. You had to be at dinner. Mom had worked. She had worked over the stove. She had made dinner. The dinner's prepared. The dinner's on the table. Six o'clock, you better be there. If you're not there, you don't eat that night. Because Mom made dinner. You knew what time it was. You didn't eat. That's it. And especially when we were dependent on using mom and dad's car. We go, well, can I go buy something to eat? What, in my car? No. She <laughs> so had to be at the dinner table. The dinner table was sort of a sacred moment every day in the McLarty household. Now, the greatest joy we had at the dinner table was making dad laugh. Because he had had a hard day at work. He had worked all day. But dad loved jokes. And so the greatest joy we got Was making dad laugh. Oh, and if you could catch him when there was milk in his mouth and it would come out his nose, that was bonus points. But if dad was mad at you, he'd say, go to your room. But I'm eating. I don't care. Go to your room. But I want to be with the family. This is important. I should be. Go to your room. And so to be sent out of the best place to be was adequate punishment for us then to correct our behavior in the desire to be restored to the dinner table because that was where the family all gathered. Same deal with the church. This is where we all gather. This is where we study. This is where we sing. This is where we pray. This is where we have fellowship. And so the discipline that we can put on people is to say you can't be part of this as long as you're living like that. And sometimes through the years, these are really good, by the way, Don. (laughs) Through the years, we have had to do that a couple of times. We have had to say, okay, your behavior doesn't comport with your Christian witness, and it's going to reflect badly on the whole church. And then those people either correct that behavior, or they rebel. And they're going to make it known pretty quickly whether they're part of the church of Jesus Christ or whether they were just there for a while and then when the trouble came, they wander away. And by the way, let me also say that this week during the conference, Roger Skeppel taught on the four soils for three nights in a row, the sower and the soils. And he did a very, very good job of talking about that very thing. That some people spring up quickly, but because there's no root in them, Satan comes and steals away what was in their heart. And so there's always going to be people who come and join the church because they just like the atmosphere, they like what's happening, there's some advantage to them. And so they come and join the church, but let some trouble come, let the cares of this world come, they fall away. So Paul is saying, you have disciplined such a one adequately... Sufficient for such a one is the punishment that was inflicted by the majority, but whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, in order, look at this next verse, look closely at verse 11, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan." For we are not ignorant of his schemes. What's the chief tool that Satan uses in churches? We've already talked about it. You should all know. You should be right there. Instant. You should be there. Division. Division. Divide the church. As long as the church stands strong as a body, collectively, worshiping and praising together and building each other up in the faith as long as that's going on satan's powerless it's hard for him to stop that the ongoing movement of the church he's been against it for two thousand years and the church still exists today as long as the church maintains the standards and studies the word and takes care of each other and loves and sacrifices for each other you can't stop the church But the church, especially in the Western world right now, is in deep trouble Mm -hmm. and tons of division because they have forgotten that their sole reason for existing is the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. And they've gotten involved in all these other things, political things, and and they've got way too much money, so they start putting on bread and circuses and bringing in clowns and... Smoke machines and rock bands because they think their job is to entertain people so that they can get their disposable cash from them. And they have forgotten that the reason for the church existing is to be the body of Christ in all that that means. But we're not ignorant to those schemes. We know the schemes of the devil. We know what it is he's up to. We understand that he's going to try to cause division. Therefore, within the church, whenever division arises, we know that's not from Christ. We know that that's Satan doing what Satan does. He's trying to divide the church. So that's our purpose for caring for each other. That's our purpose for loving each other. That's our reason for sacrificing for each other. That's our reason for contending for the unity of the body. And that's our reason for disciplining people who would otherwise cause division in a church. We have had people who had we allowed them to continue in the way they were going, we're going to divide this body. And so for the good of the body, we have to contend with the one person and bring their behavior and their approach to Christianity back in line with what we all believe. Because you know what it's like. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And as soon as somebody contentious, somebody argumentative shows up here, it's like a cancer. It spreads so fast. It just it sweeps through the body. And next thing you know, you start hearing about rumors and backbiting, and you start thinking, "Where'd all this come from? We were fine a month ago. Why are people arguing now? Anyway, we have to contend for that unity. We have to be really intentional that we keep the unity of the faith. So we're not ignorant to the schemes of Satan verse 12. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, that's what we read out of Acts, remember? Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. He expected to find Titus in Troas. But taking my leave of them... I went on to Macedonia. That's why I didn't come see you. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Okay, now Paul's going to expand on this for just a moment, so I, I take a moment. Paul uses this phrase, this sweet aroma And it harkens all the way back to Old Testament history. There was something in the Old Testament that was known as a sweet savor or a sweet aroma offering. It was one of the ways that you could please God. It was one of the ways that you could show God how devoted you were to him, how much you loved him. And to bring the sweet savor into the nostrils of God, you had to take the best of what you had and just burn it for the good of God's glory and the worship of God. And we're told that that aroma would rise up to God as a sweet savor. Now Paul is saying, we're like a sweet aroma in the world. We are now broadcasting the gospel of Christ, the only way to bring salvation to men and women, boys and girls. So we on this planet are like a sweet Aroma, and in a moment, he's going to say, Well, we're a sweet aroma to some people. He's about to say, We are the scent of life unto life for some people. When we preach the word, some people hear it, all the lights go on, everybody's home, and people just get it, and they become Christians. And they become God worshipers. And some people hear us say the exact same thing, and they hate it. And he says, we're the aroma of death unto death to some people. So even as we stand here and preach the word, even as we broadcast the gospel in the world, even as we talk to people in our day-to-day life, whenever we bring the gospel into the world, that is a sweet aroma, but to some people, that's the aroma of death because it is proof to them yet again that God exists and that God's a judge. And that they better eat, drink, and be merry. They better enjoy all of this life that they can. Because when they die, they're going to stand before a God who's a judge. But to some people, we can't get enough of it. We come back here every week to hear more of it. And it smells good to us. It just makes us happy. So here's Paul's argument. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ in every place, not just in Jerusalem, but also in Philippi, also in Macedonia, also in Thessalonica, also everywhere we go. Every time we go and preach the gospel, we're just spreading that sweet aroma of Christ. Verse 15, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and we're the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are perishing. Verse 16, to the one, the perishing, it is the aroma from death to death. But to the other, An aroma from life to life. That's one of the great promises of Christianity, is that though our body may perish, that when this lifetime is over, we step from life into life. We are the sweet aroma of Christ to people as we preach the word and as they are attracted to the word, as they inhale the word as they are consumed by the word, we're the scent of life unto life, unto everlasting life, from this life into the everlasting life. But to some people, and boy, they make themselves obvious, to some people, we're the scent of death unto death. We preach the same word. I've had that happen. I have preached sermons before where I have been as clear and as biblical as I can be, and I get done, and people come up and say positive things. They say good things. While that was good, I needed to hear that. Thank you for preaching that. And people will bolt for the door and just hate me for the rest of their life. And it's the same word. I've said the same thing. Do you remember the Sunday? Jeff will remember this. We had a Sunday many years ago, several years ago, where a fellow was sitting, right where Christian's sitting. And he started hearing what we were saying. And he stood up and interrupted me. And he said, you're starting to sound like a Calvinist. (laughs) I said, I got bad news for you. You're in a room surrounded by Calvinists. (laughs) Well, he used some pretty vitriolic language on all of us. And cursed us. And stormed out the door. And yet. There were all these people. Still sitting here. Who were just absorbing the word. And loving the word. Same word. I wasn't saying one thing to the church. And one thing to him. I was saying the same thing to the whole group. And to some people. It had that scent of life unto life. And to some people. Like him. Oh it. It infuriated him. It had that scent of death unto death. And he hated it. As I recall, we even had some men who followed him to the parking lot to make sure he wasn't going to get a gun. It was that vitriolic. You know, we never put it on the Internet. I I cut the middle of that message so that we wouldn't share this man's vitriol with the whole world. But it was a tad spooky. I remember that day like, and this could be the last day of Jim's life. It was pretty rough, but it was a perfect example of what Paul is saying. We're the scent of life to life for some people. We are the scent of death to death for other people. And now Paul says something really introspective. Having said that he and that we, his followers and the church, all the people who are publishing the gospel in the world, his next question is, Who is sufficient for these things? I mean, when we're preaching the word and it's bringing people to everlasting life and everlasting joy and looking forward and anticipating the return of Christ, but we know that the same word is bringing condemnation and judgment and damnation to people, which human being is adequate enough to handle that kind of word. This is why I tell people all the time, young preachers who say, I think I'm called to preach, I say, be careful. You better be really careful. You don't know if you're sufficient for this. I have through the years seen many, many preachers who at some point quit. At some point, just couldn't do it anymore whether it's the responsibility, whether it's the lifestyle, whether it's the pay, whether it, whatever it is, <laughs> they reach the point where they said, I, I can't do this anymore. And I think, okay, then you've proved you're not sufficient for these things. Now, I as a human being, I'm going to personalize this, I as a human being am not sufficient for these things. I'm just a, an old buffoon in my day-to-day life. If you call me on the phone and you say, I need a scripture for this or that, I'll say, great, I'll get back to you. I don't have the same ability that I have standing here behind the pulpit when the Spirit of God meets me and opens the word up and we preach the word out to you. I'm very, very conscious, very, very aware that this is a God thing and that if the Spirit doesn't meet me here, you get nothing. If God doesn't meet me here, all you're going to hear is Jim. And you're gonna walk out going, well, Jim was boring. I know I'm not sufficient for these things. I am dependent on God to be the deciding factor between those who love the word and those who are gonna be judged by the word. That's not my doing, that's his doing. My job is preach the word. My job is just tell the word. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Just tell the truth. You know what? I woke up this morning and almost called Micah. And I don't know why you. It's because we were in 2 Peter in the men's group, and I thought, well, Micah's probably got something. I barely had a voice. I was ready to just call and say, what's that thing out of Mark you got going, Tom? I can't be there. I'm sick. But I have a history with God. I know that if I can make it here, if I can get to this pulpit and get the word open, I'm going to be okay. Okay. I'm going to preach the word, and look, it happened again. Sick, 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 and I guarantee you, when I'm done talking, I'm going to be really sick again. And I'm going to go home, and we get over the cold, and I'm going to take a nap, and I'm going to, I'm going to load up on Nyquil and sleep for three days. I, that's the plan. But I know, I trust, I am confident that God meeting me here is sufficient. To do the job that God has predestined to be done. It's God's job. It's God's work. So who's sufficient for these things? Nobody. Nobody should have the power of life and death in their words. Nobody. But because God empowers it. Because God determines it. Because God has predestined it. Our job is just to tell people the truth, he'll do the sorting out. Does that make sense? Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh, there you are. Okay, it's also
0: good. the narrow
1: way. It's also the narrow way. So it's not a popular message. It's not a popular message. It's not a humanistic, flesh-affirming message. And humanistic, flesh-affirming people don't like it people whose chief aim and goal is God and his glory, love it.
0: And there's an aspect of it where we have to carry our cross daily, and it's not a very pleasant thing.
1: Isn't that what it's about? What's a cross do? It
0: changes you, it conforms you to the image of Christ.
1: Yeah, it kills you. And in that conforming process, he's going to accomplish what he's determined to accomplish in you.
0: And also, I think we agree with Calvin's view of soteriology, but we, you know, I don't think he was
1: on target on all of the other things, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I've said frequently, Calvin was a uh, sacralist, which means that he believed in using the power of the state, the power of the sword, to compel people to come to the church, to be part of the church. I don't agree with that. I mean, Geneva was, the church was also the head of the government. The two were intertwined intimately. I don't agree with that. I don't want the government coming in here and telling me anything. Mm-hmm. I want to resist the government. So, so yes, we can find plenty of places where Calvin's teaching has various differences sociologically and eschatology, So we would agree in as much as we agree with his doctrine of how people get saved. We would agree it's God's predestination and election. We would agree that it's God doing all that. But as far as how you do church, his ecclesiology, I have huge differences with that. Anyway, let's finish up. Because Jim has to go home and get sick again. Verse 15 for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things for we are not like many. Peddling the word of God. What does that word peddling mean? Selling. We're not like many who are out here selling the word of God, using it for their own personal advancement and enrichment. Mm -hmm. And apparently in Corinth, there were people doing that because Paul had to point out, I'm not like that. In fact, Paul's argument is continually, rather than getting rich off you, I'm loving you more and more and being no burden to you. And you're ending up loving me less for how much I love you. I'm not charging you for the gospel. I'm bringing you the gospel freely because I sacrificially love you. We're not like many who are peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. That is my hope for GCA. That is my hope every Sunday when we meet here, that we in sincerity are just trying to tell the truth on God. And I trust that if we just tell the truth over and over again, that when we stand before God, we'll be able to say in sincerity of heart, in genuineness, all we did was tell people about you. We didn't build up ourselves, we didn't build up our church, we didn't get rich off this, we just promoted you. And I think that's the safest place to be. That's the safest place to stand. Look, I told people about your son. Look, I pointed people to you because you're the only answer. That's the only safe way to go here. The people who start preaching or teaching out of the Bible and then interject all of this made up, creative i often refer to them as sports analogies and fishing stories as they add all of this debris all of this junk to the word of god they diminish the word of god as if you would only be able to hear and understand the word of god if they made it more entertaining for you but you will understand the word of god because you belong to god and because you have the spirit of god And because that relationship exists, you don't need me to tap dance for you. You need me to tell you what God says in his word. And that's always our goal here at GCA. Right? Right. Okay, then I think I'm done. I'm sad that I'm done. (laughs) Because at the moment, I kind of feel okay. Little sniffles, little sneezes, a couple coughs. But but now I'm going to go home and get real sick. Yes, ma'am. You want to see me tap dance? Oh my! <clears throat> I would, I would love to, but I forgot my tap shoes. I don't
0: know if I'm Calvinist. I don't know much about Calvinist. Right.
1: right? You're a biblicist. Right. Yeah. Just what does the Bible say? Yeah, exactly, exactly. By the way, is anybody in this room familiar with a video I made years ago? Since you said you want to see me tap dance. <laughs> I made a video years ago should Christians get tattoos did you see that ok so and sure, sure thousands of people around the world have watched it the church at GCA no way <laughs> so
0: in the old testament it says don't mark up your
1: body it, right and that's part of the argument I made and I turned it into Christian freedom is also the freedom to say no ok so There is a closed caption option on YouTube. And so I decided to see how I sounded in closed caption. And I turned on the closed captioning. I made a screen grab of it. Because as I introduced the topic, should Christians have tattoos? It came up, should Christians have tap shoes? (laughs) And since I'm not wearing mine today, no tap dancing. Christians should not have tap shoes. Too much clacking around as they walk. All right. Any any more questions? Did you have your hand up, Dwight? Well, Joni filled me in. Uh, you had already mentioned that I wondered what soteriology was. It's oh, okay. about getting saved. Yeah, the doctrine of salvation. Yeah, and ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church, how you do church. (laughs) So that's all it is. They're just fancy, made-up words. Like David Morris said last week, all words are made up. Yeah, Yeah. so it's a fancy, made-up theological word so that people in ivory towers can go, I know more than you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yes, sir?
0: The next time you schedule those last two hymns, Please pass the
1: Kleenex. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that means you did a good job. So thank you for... Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Francis, say goodbye to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.